0: In your Christian walk, in my Christian walk, you will fall, you will sin, you will get rebuked, you will repent, then you will get back up and keep going. And you will see other people sin, get rebuked, get back up and keep going. And that's the expected behavior of a Christian. That's what you should expect when a brother or a sister or a pastor or your spouse comes to you lovingly, humbly, having removed the plank, the plank from their own eye, but still showing up to help you with the speck in your eye. When that happens, it's assumed that you will repent. And that's what Paul is expecting. He's telling them, I'm assuming that you're going to hear everything I've said up to this point. I'm expecting that you will have no other view. That's the expectation Paul has for the Galatian church. All right, let's pray and then we'll get started here. Father God, Lord, thank you for this church and just the, the faithful members that come Sunday after Sunday, Lord, seeking to hear from you, Lord, I pray that you would remove any self or, or foolishness or, or misunderstanding from me and that they would hear from you through your word today, Father. Please bless this church and Lord, give us an understanding of your word that we may pursue you uh, with the knowledge that you've given us through your word. Amen. All right. Well, it's nice to see everybody. We've got a few people out. I don't know if The Lewis's are uh, in Florida. So be praying for them. And um, the Roberts have some sick kids again, because it's that time of decade that everybody's sick quite often, it seems. So be praying for the Roberts. And then uh, we heard from Tafik this week that Uh, Him and Michelle are going to be doing the shared custody every other weekend, and that's going to be starting soon. And when that does, on the off weekends, he'll be able to join us for fellowship. Uh, I guess our meeting time conflicts with his drop-off time for the kids. Um, But beyond that, he he, he did say he would be able to fellowship with us again, which I'm actually pretty encouraged by. I miss that brother. Um, An interesting thing we have right now is the format of Chris, Kenzie, and myself trading off every three weeks is it can make it a little difficult um, to follow along um, in, with like a series. You know, it's, it's been three weeks before you hear from Chris. i an going to three weeks again, and you might lose your place a little bit. And for myself today, um, it's been six weeks since I last spoke to any of you guys on Galatians. Last time I spoke, we, I was talking on fasting because it was the beginning of our year and our week of corporate fasting, which was a really big encouragement to everybody that mentioned it afterwards to me. Um but I haven't spoke to anybody on Galatians since December eleventh, which was forty-two days ago. So um if any of you are like me and it's easy to forget things when they're not right in front of you, my wife can attest that if something's not right in front of me or if it's more than a day removed, it tends to slip my mind. So I don't think it's beyond realistic expectations that you guys probably don't remember what I closed out chapter four with. Um from the Galatian study, so because of that, we're going to do a little review today of chapter four before we dive into chapter five. Um, and something that I have found not just in this format of being broken up in three-week cycles, but in in any church I've been in, and I was encouraged by pastors when I was newly saved, um, that you can do to kind of help fight this lengthy time between messages is in the week leading up to the Sunday, read and pray kind of over the text that you know the pastor's going to be going through. Or you know the preacher's going to be going through. Sorry, Chris, not pastor. Okay. And uh, and it's it's pretty simple. You know if Kenzie's going to be preaching, it's going to be something. It's going to be in Hebrews, and you can find YouTube and maybe refresh yourself. If it's Chris, um, it's going to be Acts. And if it's me, it's going to be Galatians for the most part. So I, I would definitely encourage you to do that. I don't say this as a condemnation. I don't do it perfectly. There are several Sundays where I've sat down and... and uh, Chris has opened up or Kenzie's opened up and I've realized I didn't read ahead. I, I have to kind of pay extra attention and it's it's a little difficult to follow along because that that the verses are not fresh in my mind and the context is not fresh in my mind. Um, so, let's see here. So before I go into my Galatians, all right, so I'm going to give you a, I'm going to give a brief little recap on Galatians 4. You don't need to turn there. I'm not going to go verse by verse. I'm just going to um, kind of give a little bit of what was said towards the end to kind of help us follow the continuity in, from Galatians 4 to Galatians 5. And the reason is, although in your Bible when you open up it says Galatians 5, chap, or Galatians chapter 5 verse 1, Galatians is not a book cut into chapters. Galatians is one letter written to the church that was read in its entirety. And that's how it was received. So continuity between chapters or from one pause to another is important because they didn't have to struggle with that when they were receiving the information. And I I would encourage everybody at least one time in the three weeks between Galatians messages to read the entire book of Galatians. It takes about 25 minutes if you sit there and kind of read it yourself. I'm sure those that are faster readers can get it done quicker. It takes me about 25 minutes. Um, And it, it does give a... Uh, a help in understanding and um, keeping on guard on whoever's teaching because you want to make sure that, that you have a good handle on your Bible as well. <clears throat> so Galatians 4, um, towards the end, Paul, bring, or, uh, Paul brings out the analogy of Abraham, saying that Abraham had two sons, one of the slave woman and one of the free woman. The sons of the slave woman, she's Hagar, and she was, she was producing children under the law. And these these uh, Judaizers that have snuck into the church and were trying to uh, promote circumcision, um, he's he's saying that like, these are the people that are slaves because the the child of promise that was born through the the free wife, that's the New Jerusalem, that's the the, the Jerusalem from above, that's the and and, the, and her children are free. Um, Paul doesn't let the Judaizers hold on to their physical lineage as their freedom. He's saying that this is a promise made and that that the freedom is in in Christ. The freedom is in not being under the law, under the bondage of the law. And Paul talks to the Galatians as Christians, telling them that that they, and he actually puts himself in the same camp as them, he says, we were not children of the slave woman, but we are children of the free woman. So... So with that tail end of Galatians 4, we're going to start, start in Galatians 5. And I'm going to read Galatians 5 like I usually do. But I'm going to warn you now, we're probably not finishing Galatians 5 today. Um, Galatians is starting to become far too concentrated for me to pull it out in one, in one chapter per hour on Sunday. So we're going to get maybe halfway through Galatians and, and we'll see how far we can get today. Um, but Galatians 5, starting in verse 1. It says for freedom Christ has set us free stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery look i paul say that to you that if you accept circumcision Christ will be of no advantage to you i testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law you are severed from Christ you who would be justified by the law you have fallen away from grace for through the spirit by faith we ourselves eagerly, eagerly await the hope of righteousness for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear, will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Do not, do, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you, bite and, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires if we live by the spirit let us no longer keep in, let us if we live by the spirit let us keep in step with the spirit let us not become conceited provoking one another envying one another so you see the flow from chapter from the end of 4 to the beginning of 5 in the first verse for freedom Christ has set you free stand firm therefore and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery Paul is really trying to drive home the point that Christ dying on the cross for you, redeeming you from your sins, taking you from the position of a slave in bondage under the law to a free son co-heir with Christ was not for the purpose of you immediately putting yourself back into bondage. The Christian is supposed to walk around in a freedom that the lost man does not have. The lost man walks around and he is under the curse of the law. The Jews had a specific set of laws that they were given by God to be under, but even the Gentiles have God's moral law written on their hearts, and they defy that law constantly. Uh, If you can turn to Romans 2, 14, 14 and 15. I'll give you just a second to get there. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature, do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the works of the law the, is written that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their consciences also bear witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. By contrast to that, the Christian walks around free from the law as a master over him. The life of the Christian is no longer spent. Restraining our rebellious hearts, but is now freed to follow and pursue the desire of our righteous hearts. That is the desire to follow Christ and live holy li- and live holy lives with no restraint. There's a lot of misconception in this statement, and before I'm accused of antinomianism, uh, let me. Clarify that if, if anybody doesn't understand it. Antinomianism, it's a Greek term, anti meaning against, nomin, nomos, or nomos is the law. So somebody's against the law. It's a heresy that was that is attributed to John Agricol. Agrico. Um, and let's see here, about 1535 is when he came up with it. John Agricol was friends with Martin Luther, but due to this heresy, Luther actually had to pen um, a response to John titled, Against the Antinomians. Um, and it may sound good, their, their, their theology, their doctrine, states that, uh, let's see here, that under the gospel dispensation, the moral law is of no use or obligation, but faith alone is necessary for salvation. Which sounds good in part, but it's, the, the, the root of it can be seen in some of the quotes from John Agricol. He's quoted as saying, if you sin, be happy it should have no consequence. He also is quoted as saying, the Decalogue, which is the Ten Commandments, belong in the courthouse, not the pulpit, to the gallows be with Moses. This is not a a believer saying, I'm not under the law. This is somebody saying, well, I'm saved, so I can do whatever I want. And in church history, men have had to deal with this heresy and and put it down. Uh, J.C. Ryle is quoted as saying um, about the antinomian, they are people who boast of having an interest in Christ, a saving interest in Christ, and say that they are pardoned and forgiven, while at the same time they live willful—they live in willful sin and open breach of God's commandments. I dare say that such people are miserably deceived. This lawless Christian—and I put Christian in quotations—is not what Paul is talking about. Paul is not saying that now that you're free from the law, you have freedom to kind of sin and do whatever you want in a sinful way. He's saying you have a new heart and the desires of your heart are to do follow Christ. Uh, Paul does explain this and clarify it a little bit in verse 13. We won't get there today, but that'll come soon. Um, I can give you a bit of a human example. It's not perfect, but when I was, so I have a younger brother and I have to say younger because he's not, little at all. He's about three inches taller than me, and he makes me look small when I stand next to him. Um, But my younger brother, when I was about 12, which made him about eight, uh, we were both lost children, and one of our favorite things was to find new and creative ways to offend, harass, and annoy each other. And I had to be under the law of my parents that said, do not hit your little brother, which I would constantly break and would constantly get punished for. But now, and like praise the Lord now that we're both walking with the Lord, I no longer need my parents to tell me, don't hit your little brother. And it's not because he's bigger than me. It's because I no longer have a heart that desires ill will towards my brother. As a matter of fact, I desire to see him succeed and grow. And if it's possible for me to sacrifice in a way for his benefit, I will try and do that. And when I don't do that, that's my falling short of my calling not me failing to fulfill some form of law. I am now free to live towards my younger brother exactly how I want to live because the heart in me says, love your brother. And this is not a perfect example because I don't do it perfectly. I'm certain that there are ways I could have loved him more and I have chosen not to. But it is, it is the Christian's love for Christ. It is their sensitivity to the Holy Spirit that now governs the actions of the Christian. Christ Christians are not restrained by an outward force. We are now motivated by an inward desire, and the inward desire prompts is given us is given to us from our new heart that cries, Abba Father, we desire to please God, and we are now free to move within those desires. Uh, continuing Galatians into Galatians 5, verse 2 through 4. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Paul is warning these Galatians that it's an either or with circumcision. You're either circumcised and severed from Christ or you're abandoning grace or any unity with God through circumcision and you're putting your faith solely in Christ. And to constantly make sure that I'm not misunderstood, it's not just the physical act of circumcision that Paul's talking about. In the Corpus Church, there was a dear brother who's actually a doctor, and er, early when I went to the church, the concept of circumcision came up and I just asked him, like, is that still something to do today? And he's like, yeah, it's, there's a, several medical benefits for men, and it's not a bad thing. And, you know, we talked about how the eighth day uh, makes it you know, hurt less and heal faster, and, and he, he went kind of behind the science of it. And he, since then, he's gotten married and had some kids, and his boys were circumcised, and it's, it's not a big deal. Paul's not talking about the physical act. He actually specifies that in verse 6. What Paul is talking about it is the belief that goes with the physical act. So, so the belief that if i do this i will be accepted by god if i do this it will be me being obedient to god paul is saying if you accept that then you are now required to obey the entire law you can't take a part of the law the law is not a buffet where you walk around and pick the pieces you want it's it's everything or nothing And he's saying, by doing that, if you, if you decide to go under the law, not only are you required to be under it and submit yourself to it fully, but now Christ is of no value to you. Because you're seeking faith through something that was never designed to bring about righteousness. You're seeking righteousness through a means of works. When the Bible says at the beginning, the first covenant with Abraham was, the righteous shall live by faith. And we know that, That the law has its requirements, but it also has its its totality. If you you look in Leviticus, you don't have to turn there. It's a short short section. But Leviticus 26, 14, when God is giving the law to Moses, and at the end, he gives all of the blessings for following it. But after that, he gives the the punishment for not following it in verse 26, uh, 14. But if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments... And then he goes and listens to the punishment that comes from it. You have to do the entire law. If you do it, if, if you want to do the law, you're bound by all of it, every single piece. And Paul said the same thing at the beginning of Galatians in chapter 3. He says, for all who rely, chapter three ten, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. For them, for the Galatian church, the act of circumcision was actually severing them from Christ, not because it's a physical act that severs them, but because of the hope they put in it, which shows you just how Satan will twist anything he can to try and deceive the people. This originally was given to God's people. This, this severing of a piece of themselves physically to show that they were cut off from the world, to show that they were a peculiar people, Satan is now bringing it full circle and is now using it to trick the actual people of God and try and sever them from being joined to Christ. And bringing them away from grace. Galatians 5, 5 through 6. For through the spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith walking through love, working through love. Okay, this next section it's going to sound like I've gone off the rails, but I promise I'm going to tie it back into verse five. Um, our God, the God that we serve, is so much bigger and so much more powerful, and so much more infinite than we understand at all. If we even understood a tenth of who he truly is, and what he is truly capable of, we wouldn't doubt anymore. We Our, our, our lack of faith would be gone because of his ability to provide. His power is completely unlimited. Um, we are, and I'm not saying this because I am fulfilling it. The, the, and I've said it before, but the, th- the problem with standing up here is I always seem like I'm the one who understands it better than everybody, but a lot of times it's during these moments of study I realize how far I fall from the mark, and trusting the Lord is definitely something I could be a lot more um, consistent with because he is infinitely capable and worth all of our trust. We are restrained by time and space, and we are so finite and limited in what we can see, but God is not restrained. And then the Bible gives us little glimpses into how powerful and out there he really is. Um, glimpses like 2 Peter 3 8. But we, sorry, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that the Lord, that to, with the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. We are so temporary and finite, and temporary is in we have a beginning, that even though God has said something, He's made us a promise, He's given us a declaration by His own word, and He's written it in stone. It's actually more permanent than stone it's it's by His own word that it's hard for us to believe it and we don't get to see it um we're 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 so limited um if you turn, turn with me if you will to ephesians one four through five and I know all the Calvinists in the room already have this verse memorized <clears throat> it says. Wait till pages stop turning. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his goodwill. Yes, we're elect, we're predestined. That's, that's a wonderful thing to dwell on. But today, dwell. I want to dwell on the before the foundation of the world part. Before anything happened, you know, I I am, I would be called a a young earth creationist. I believe, you know, the earth was created by God. I believe it's young. I don't know, less than 15,000, more than 100. I I don't have a detail. And I think that you can get in the weeds with a lot of these debates. But even if you're a young earth creationist or even an evolutionist, and I, I don't believe there are any evolutionists here. I'm just making an example. You actually both agree on one thing. And you agree that the earth has a beginning. There's a day when it started. But what it says in Ephesians is before the foundation of the world, before the foundation of the earth, before it was created, not only did God exist, but he was actively making decisions, making plans. He knows what's going to happen from the beginning to the end, and everything is in his hand, and it will play out exactly as he has chosen. So how does all of this grandiose talk about God tie into verse 5? is that we are counted as righteous before God. Faith in Christ is the the means that God counts us righteous. But we don't get to see that yet. We don't get to experience that. We get to experience glimpses of it. We get the indwelling Holy Spirit, the surety of God that he is with us. We get um, to see the Lord answer our prayers. We get... Um, fellowship with God, but we don't get to see ourselves as righteous. We still see our fallen nature. We still see our limitedness. That is why we need faith for when that day comes. We need faith to know that we're righteous before God. We need faith to say, I am righteous before God, but you can't look at yourself because you won't see righteousness. If you look at yourself, you have to say with faith because of what Christ did for me. And when you pray and you stand before the presence of God, you can't look at yourself again. You have to say, I can be here. I'm accepted because of what Christ did for me. And when you sin, because Christians do sin, you need faith to read Proverbs 24, 16, for the righteous falls seven times and rises again. And then you need faith to say, that's talking about me. Because we don't get to see it yet. It isn't until we die that we are actually clothed in a righteousness that we can see. So with this teaching of circumcision coming in the church and the Galatians falling to it and it not being kicked out of the door immediately, I can see the appeal. I understand why it was able to dwell versus other heresies. It's demonic. Undoubtedly, the men that were bringing it in were doing exactly what Paul said they were doing. They were trying to avoid persecution by getting the the Christians to kind of look like the Jews. Yeah, yeah, Christ is, yeah, yeah. We can believe in Christ. Uh, uh, you, You can do things a little differently, but get circumcised. Follow the law of Moses. And then there's no persecution. I can kind of see that because... Faith in what Christ did for you when you still have to look at your own sinful flesh every day is hard, but it's easy to have something to hold on to and say, I I did this thing. I have have something I can look at. But Paul makes it clear, circumcision, not circumcision, that's not what counts. It's only faith working out through love. Well, how is faith worked out through love? (laughs) There's, uh, There's nothing I can see there. Well, to see how faith is worked out through love, I would would go to Christ's conversation with the lawyer in Luke 10, starting in verse 25. I'll give you a second to get there if you want to read along. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. The Christian life is explained pretty simply. Love God, love your neighbor. Desire to actively seek and pursue what is best for others. Do nothing from selfish motivation, but seek to love others. A good example of this is evangelism. Evangelism is not a work that gets people closer to God. Evangelism is simply loving your neighbor. It would be easy for the men of the church or the the men that evangelize to say, I would rather sleep in on Saturday or go fishing or play with my kids or even just some quiet Bible reading time in my study would be beneficial and profitable. But what's the most loving thing I can do? Okay, what's the most loving thing I can do to God? Well, I love God. He deserves all praise, all glory. We just talked about the fifth pillar of the um, five solas is sola dea glorio. We want things done for his glory. And there are men and women out there right now not praising him. And the Lord deserves glory from them praising him for his sake. I will give up a Saturday afternoon and go to the college for his sake. We'll give up a Sunday evening and we'll go under the bridge and talk to homeless people. It's not to gain anything. It's, it's because we truly desire to bring glory to God. And that's the most loving thing we can do to him in that moment. Okay. What's the most loving thing I can do to my neighbor? Well, we watch these college students, these teachers, these older women, these homeless people, blindly running to the pit of hell. And the most loving thing we can do is tell them, stop, turn to Christ. Working out your faith and love is taking care of orphans and widows and the infirmed. And I added infirmed, it's not in the verse, but I added infirm because that's what Paul was and that's what he talks about here to the Galatians. I was sick and you came and nurtured me. You're not taking, sister, you know, is not taking care of orphans and widows and, and and sick people so that people will look at her and go, oh, she's just got such a big heart. I, be, I bet she's got a special place in heaven. No, this is the least I can do for my master. Homeschooling your kids because you want them to know the Bible. Working overtime because you want to make sure your family's provided for, uh, Studying hard so that you can get good grades so that your tuition money isn't wasted because it would dishonor your parents who paid for your tuition. This is how a Christian lives his life walking in the Spirit, doing whatever he can, whatever is within our ability to love God and love other people. Denying self, not that we gain anything from it, but just as a gift to the Lord who's already given us everything. this week after uh, prayer at Chris's house on the way home, we uh, got an email from a missionary family that we know that lives in the Middle East. And it was a very encouraging email, very hard trials that are going on over there with the country, but very encouraging. And one of the things that was mentioned in the email was mentioned many times in, in meetings I've had and in times I've met with this individual and, and various emails in the past one of the constant themes is even though they're in a heavily Muslim area, even though there are many people that have opposed them, threatened violence to them, um, tried to, to, to bribe government officials to get them kicked out of the country, um, even though that they're in a very hostile area, um, one of the ways that the Lord has allowed them to grow is giving them opportunities to help people around them. There have been people that have uh, basically threaten to harm them and harm their children. And later, a family member is sick or somebody is having a baby and they don't have the money to pay the hospital. So they don't know where to go for help. There's nowhere to go for help, but the Christians will help. And the Christians keep helping and to their own hurt and to their own expense. And they're loaning generators and they're loaning um, medicines and they're, and they're paying people's hospital bills and they're not asking for anything in return. And these Muslims are watching that the Christians don't only help Christians. And they go, that's peculiar behavior. That's different. You you help my sister with her medicine. You help my mother with her tumor. You help my dad with his surgery. Why? And because these Christians in this Muslim area are being willing to, at their own hurt, help and love their neighbors around them, it has made them so different in the eyes of those that look at them that people have come up afterwards, and asked, came to meetings, and been saved. And that is exactly what Paul is telling the Galatians that they were doing. In verse 7, he says, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. In the last chapter, Paul was telling them that he knew that that his bodily ailment was a burden to them, but they didn't despise him. They were loving to him. And he he asked them, what had become of your blessedness? And here he's telling them, you guys were doing it. You were running the race. You were were getting some headway. Who stopped you? And we see here that, that even though they have this brief pause and they desire to kind of go back under the law. He's telling them, this isn't the message from the one who came. This isn't the first message you heard. This isn't the gospel I brought you. And Paul's made great lengths to say, I didn't bring my gospel. I brought, I didn't bring man's gospel. I brought the actual gospel. He's saying, he's saying, you guys were doing this. Who stopped you? And he warns them, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. A few years ago, I tried to make sourdough bread at the house. I, and sourdough bread's not very difficult. It's actually pretty easy. It's just time-consuming and a little bit of labor. Um, basically, you take water and flour, you mix it together, and you let it sit on the counter for a few days. And then you throw half of it away, and you add some flour, and maybe add some water, and you let it sit for a few more days. And you repeat this cycle until you have this kind of bubbling, frothy, s- stinky starter. That's what it's called, a sourdough starter. And if you... Like sourdough bread, it's a great thing to do. So you have your starter, which is in a small jar over here, and then you go to make bread. You add your flour and you add your eggs and you add whatever you're gonna make, whatever your bread recipe is. And then you take a tiny bit of your sourdough starter and you mix it in with your bread mix, and you mix it all together and you set it on the counter. And four or six hours later, when you open that bread, it will have doubled or tripled in size. It smells amazing, and it's completely covered in the starter yeast. And it's, and it's all bubbly, and there's air pockets everywhere. And that is what Paul is warning this church is happening. He's telling them that this false teaching that's being brought in, you're at the same risk as that loaf of bread. If you want a pure unleavened cake, the only way to have that is to keep the starter out. And he is telling them, he is warning them, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. This little bit of yeast that's brought into this cake is going to destroy the whole thing. And you will no longer have an unleavened cake. The whole thing will be ruined. And he warns the person that crept in. And he warns them that the person that crept in is, is putting them at risk of being destroyed. It's like, you don't let this stay in your church. You find it, you cut it off, and you remove it. And we see one of the most encouraging things, and I'm encouraged more by Corinthians, but also here in Galatians. Paul's correcting this church. He's bringing a hard rebuke. He's, he's making sure to to not really pull his punches with these guys. But he calls them brothers. He puts himself in their same camp. He says, you know, we are no longer children of the slave woman. And here in verse 10, he, he kind of shows that he is talking to Christians. Because he says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. In your Christian walk, in my Christian walk, you will fall, you will sin, you will get rebuked, you will repent, then you will get back up and keep going. And you will see other people sin, get rebuked. Get back up and keep going. And that's the expected behavior of a Christian. That's what you should expect when a brother or a sister or a pastor or your spouse comes to you lovingly, humbly, having removed the plank the plank from their own eye, but still showing up to help you with the speck in your eye. When that happens, it's assumed that you will repent. And that's what Paul is expecting. He's telling them, I'm assuming that you're going to hear everything I've said up to this point. I'm expecting that you will have no other view. That's the expectation Paul has for the Galatian church. But it's terrifying, a couple of verses, because he's also expecting that this heretic that brought in this false teaching will get get judged by the Lord for their heresy. He's expecting that the Lord will do to them what the Lord does to heretics. verse 11 and 12 But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those that unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Paul consistently reminds the Galatian church that the reason for those men bringing in circumcision is not because it's a new doctrine, is not because they actually believe that's the right way to get with God. It's simply because they want to make a show out of the Galatian church, and they want to avoid persecution. Rejecting circumcision, standing in the face of the Jewish elders and leaders and saying, no, the laws of Moses, that has come to a close. It is now faith in Christ. is getting people killed, and these men are afraid of that. So they're running around trying to promote heresy in hopes to avoid persecution. And Paul is wanting the Galatian church to not only run away from that, but he wants them to know why it's even being brought up so that it can't be debated or argued. And Paul continues using harsh language towards people that bring heresy in. He says, I wish that those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. That's how it reads in the ESV, that's how it reads in the NIV. The King James says he wishes they would cut them, they were cut off. The NASB actually goes a step further and says he wishes they would mutilate themselves. The Greek word that we're working with here for cut off, mutilate, emasculate is opokopoto. Opokopoto. And I'm sure there's a better way to pronounce that. But it does in fact mean to cut off, to mutilate, physical harm. But it also has a little bit of irony built into it. It has a kind of a double entendre meaning. Where Paul says this verse, he's not just making some rash, angry phrase. This isn't Paul losing his temper. This isn't Paul just spouting off that he wishes his enemies would be hurt. Remember, in the next book of your Bible in Ephesians 6.12, it's Paul who says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers, over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil and the the heavenly paces. What Paul is saying is actually much more intense and much scarier than just physical harm wished on somebody. Paul is saying that these men have crept into the church and they're trying to tell you that if you would just cut yourself, if you would just mutilate yourself, then you would be accepted by God. And Paul is saying, well, I wish they would cut themselves. Well, I wish they would mutilate themselves and be severed from God, like like cut off from God. This is the same language he used at the first chapter in Galatians in chapter one, verse nine, as we have said before, so I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let them be accursed. And if you can remember, when I went over accursed, it means to be cut off from God. Paul is saying these men have brought in heresy. They're, they're trying to harm the church. And I want, yeah, oh, you want us to cut ourselves? Well, cut yourself and get out of here. Cut yourself and be cut off. And this is not a mean thing by Paul. This is the most loving response Paul can do because he's loving God and he's loving the people of God. Um, And Paul does say to deal harshly with people like this. In Titus 3 verses 10 and 11, Paul tells Titus, as far as a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Yes, we are supposed to evangelize the lost. We are supposed to go and seek out wicked, evil people and present them with the gospel. But the church, the members of the church, are supposed to be pure and holy. This is supposed to be a place where truth is preached and lie is rejected. And that should be guarded fiercely. And Paul says, if somebody comes in and they're being Divisive. If somebody comes in and they're stirring up division, if somebody comes in and they are uh, and they won't listen to rebuke when they're told, "Hey, stop preaching that," kick them out immediately. The Bible does not say it goes well for people like that. In Luke 17, and he said to his disciples, "Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one to whom they come! It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and were cast, and he were cast into the sea." then he should cause one of these little ones to sin. The Lord does not deal kindly or generously to those who intentionally and maliciously seek, sneak into his church and try and bring his people down by tempting them to sin. He does forgive people like that when they repent. But people that hold on to that, it shouldn't be taken lightly by members of the church. It shouldn't be taken lightly by the overseers of the church. False doctrine should be snuffed out immediately any doctrine that comes against Christ alone for salvation or or exactly what the Bible teaches should be dealt with harshly and swiftly. Because the only response to being told you're in error in, in, in theology and you're in error in causing people to sin is repentance. And the Lord does grant repentance for people like that. I would imagine it surprised many people when Jesus braided a whip out of cords and ran into the temple and started beating people until they left because his father demands a holy house. How much more does he demand a holy bride? I imagine that if heresy should knock at the door of this church, you're going to see a very different side of Chris, Kenzie, and myself because we are dead serious on keeping scripture as pure as possible. And when we're in error, we would want to repent of it because we want only what the Lord brings and I'm convinced, it's been debated on whether or not Paul was being mean when he said what he said, but I'm, I'm convinced that Paul was being as loving as possible because he loves God too much to allow heresy to go on and he loves his neighbor too much to allow them to be deceived. So, uh, Lord willing, next, next time we'll finish chapter five. Let's pray. Father God, you do desire a holy church. You do desire a people set apart for you. Lord, I pray that you would bless this church, that we would stand firm for you, that we would reject heresy, that we would seek truth, and that you would keep the teachers of this church from error, Lord.